0: why do you learn a language learn for a reason and and have fun when you do that and and that's it and i don't think this is unique to language learning i think it's it applies to all the things that you do in your life uh, at least this is you know the principle that guides me through through the learning experiences that i have
1: what languages do you speak i just have this feeling that you're going to say well that depends on how you define
0: speak. <laughs> yeah again it depends uh, as you were right but my native language is Polish, speak English. Uh, I'm currently learning Spanish. Uh, I speak German. I I can have a conversation in in Russian and in Slovak. And I speak modern standard Arabic and the Levantine dialect, which is just a vernacular form of of Arabic. And I'm also learning Greek. I have I can have you no know, conversations around the topics of like food and daily stuff, not politics. But I can go with my my Greek and I have some proficiency in Serbo-Croatian and Bulgarian. I started teaching when I was quite little. And when I was in school, I started tutoring, you know, my peers and helping them out with different things, including languages. And so that just continued on. And I grew up in a family that had um, a nonprofit organization and a theater. So we've been with children all the time in different capacity. So I was on the side of an instructor all the time. and. Um, it was quite natural to transition to a more formal way of teaching. Although I need to admit that I hated teachers and I hated teaching. And the idea of me being a teacher, I would never like even sound possible because my mom is a teacher. And I remember the children stealing her from me and I was really jealous of that. And my dad was working with kids too. So I hated that. And I was all the time repeating, I will never work with children. <laughs> And then I started um, studying psychology and I quickly realized that I have to focus on children because I just love them so much and it's so natural, you know. And um, in the meantime of studying psychology, I started studying applied linguistics because I was really curious about languages and I was tutoring uh, informally. I was not a teacher yet. And then as I started studying linguistics, I also studied um, second language acquisition and teaching languages, specifically English to children. Uh, So I got my diploma in Applied Linguistics and then also in um, ESL. Um, So, but the focus was on children. And in the meantime, I was going to different countries for a couple of months a year to teach and do other things related to psychology, but also a part of each experience was teaching languages. (laughs) with different populations so it started this way and then I um and I've been just like doing that for 10 years now uh, with children but I had experiences new experiences teaching adults which was never my objective <laughs> honestly but you know as I started working in refugee camps um I started working more with uh, families and uh, you know the population i was serving also included adults and obviously my primary focus was psychosocial support but occasionally i was asked to deliver some language tutoring or work with adults who are really motivated to learn and i spoke a language and i can teach the language so okay so i had to educate myself on that um and um, then i shifted more towards training the teachers Um, in terms of trauma-informed teaching and adjusting language curriculum to to refugees specifically. And uh, in the U.S., I've been also teaching at the academia. Non-languages, though, but, you know, other other things. So it's like a mixture of everything, but teaching has been a part of that.
1: You mentioned uh, experience in applied linguistics and psychology. So language learning seems like something that you definitely know about you mentioned the word "demystify language learning. Mm. Uh, I'm wondering like what is the mystery around language learning and how can we approach it differently
0: mm, That's a good question From my experiences as a teacher and my experiences as a learner and also a psychologist i can I can tell that there is this tendency in the society to believe that you can become proficient uh, only under certain conditions so either you have very high iq or you're just so gifted or you speak languages since you are born or you know and so on and so on and i disagree with every single piece of that because even there's no research to support that uh so so common so common and it's really discouraging people from learning and it's you know just creating a lot of hype around learning languages, especially this piece with, with this IQ because there is no evidence even to support that language learning uh, is correlated with higher IQ. Um, of course, language learning can impact your cognition and your executive functions and your overall cognitive processing, but it will not, make you a genius and so i hear that often even among people who you know they study languages or they even have certain level of of experience and education but i think this pattern is so embedded in certain cultures especially cultures that are more monolingual um that people just ascribe higher intelligence to to people who speak languages whether actually there are so many places where people naturally learn and acquire multiple languages because there is need for that Um, so that's that's one piece and uh, secondly people also believe that um only children can acquire a language to a level that we can call it fluent whatever that means but This is also not true because we, we, we tend to believe that children learn so much because they're tiny and little and they make these milestones rapidly. And so they're very visible to us adults. They're impressive. But adults, in fact, have more cognitive capacities to learn a language because we have all these meta tools that children don't have. We can reason at the abstract level. Children struggle with that. Of course, they develop the skills, but Children are very, very much so dependent on the e- immediate experience and what happens here and now. And the, the mystery of language acquisition in the childhood is related to the exposure. Children just are immersed. They get the prompts from all over the place. They meet with mom, with dad, with an auntie, with a cousin, with the teacher. Everyone is just bombarding them with the input. And uh, this is the very specific targeted input. This is a dog, you know, this is a doggy. What color is the dog? You know, what is the sound that the dog makes? Etc. etc. And with adults we don't have that much exposure. And we get terrified to learn. And so then we believe, um, out of our fear of failure, that no, we can't do that because it's something for privileged people who are having incredible mental capacities and cognitive capacities. And I'm I, you know, all my, I think, chance for success is gone because I'm already an adult.
1: What, do you, what advice would you give to adults?
0: I would perhaps say, you know, to reconnect with your inner child and recall these moments when you were asking endless questions, you were exploring, and you were just curious. Um, and just not, I don't think that thinking about that language learning as a as a task uh, can be helpful for some people, but for many people it's overwhelming because they want to achieve an endless goal that for every single person is different because when we even think about language proficiency, what does that mean? You know, like my students keep asking me a question, how long do I have to learn to be proficient? And it's like, what does that mean? You know, for one person proficient means to be able to write books in English or Spanish. For another person, is to be able to watch the movies without subtitles. For another person is to just go for a week holiday and be able to order your food. And so that depends on on, on our personal goals. And of course there are exams and there are some standard procedures to kind of measure our proficiency. But in fact, you will never get proficient in a language because it is still evolving and in your mother tongue, <laughs> you learn the words day by day. Um, so I think when you are a kid, you don't know what is the end goal. You just you don't you are not focused on like an ultimate goal that oh I need to ask all these three thousand questions about the flowers because I want to know all the flowers in the world. You can't even comprehend what does that mean all the flowers in the world. So you just keep asking questions about what is here and now and Um, you enjoy them, and and, and that's the most important thing, I guess, but it's very much so lost um, in adult students.
1: What about someone who's just making that first step? Someone who really, maybe they took a semester of Spanish or or Polish or German back in high school, but it's been years now, they're 30, 40, 50, even 60, an adult learner, and they're really at that basic level. What would you suggest for those first steps?
0: Well, I guess that if they're taking a first step, they already have some uh, pre-existing beliefs about what they need from the process. So I think that setting a clear goal for yourself is the key because the fact that you had, let's say, two semesters of German in the past, and so what? Do you need that language just because you had it and you will never use it and you're not passionate about it? It's going to be a torture and you will not learn that language to a level that you will be happy with because you don't need it. So the motivation is the key. Um, and I think that sometimes people get confused about that and they, um, they they want to learn a language because it sounds fancy. Oh, I'm multilingual and that's nice to speak a language. but in fact, you need to ask yourself a question which language do you want to speak? It might be, you know, for some people English or Spanish, but it might be Icelandic because you love Icelandic music and actually you will just skyrocket in learning Icelandic and you would never get that level of proficiency in Spanish because it just never, it's never been something that you like. Uh, so I think being, being very purposeful, given that also adults don't have that much time as children do. Um, and you need to be efficient in your language learning. So setting the goal, I would say that's, that, that's the must in the beginning and being frank with yourself.
1: What about for teachers? So I've had the, a case where a student was working with China, a fashion designer, working daily uh, with the factory, the uh, producers in China. And she hated English so much that she tried to learn Chinese. She had a really negative resistance towards the language, but she really needed to learn English for effective communication at work. So, how could you get someone to like the language if they have that resistance? How would you start with that student?
0: Beginning, it's more like coaching, setting up these expectations, setting up that goal, making it be measurable and realistic as well. And once that foundation is prepared, of course you you do language teaching in the meantime, but I, each and every lesson that I have, there is a portion of that that is dedicated to coaching, I would say, Uh, and I always use the materials that are relevant to the student. I am not a big fan of the typical curriculum of introducing a foreign language. Oh, this is now we learn the present tense. Talk about the past, what you have done, what you did yesterday, and you talk about your plans in the future. And so the bulk of time that we spend, for example, to to learn English, it's the present tense. Of course, it's important, and I don't want to discredit the importance of that, but the language learner who is not that motivated (laughs) needs this boost of motivation. So they need to get to the point that they can communicate and um, it has to be functional. So that means, in my opinion, that Again, the purpose should actually guide the planning of, of, of the lessons. So I always choose the materials that are relevant for, for them. And so if I have a software developer, I would not bother them with the list of vocabulary for fruits and vegetables. Of course, I you know introduce that here and there when we talk about daily stuff but I'll get him an interview with software developers, even though it's a full-speed name, but I will design the exercises around that. That are adjusted to their level of proficiency. So that can be just listening comprehension. That can be, you know, filling gaps. That can be tons of different things. But I will make them feel that they are not treated like children, because some people may not like that. Uh, I don't. I I would hate for my students to feel that I just, you know, approach them as um, little kids, and they feel infantile, because that's that's not great. Um, And again, I know that there is. Also, some attitude also in teaching languages that um, some people believe that you, you need to gradually introduce the material until you get proficient to uh, find this, you know, growl of of a language proficiency, and you can listen to a movie without subtitles. I um, disagree with that because, based on knowledge, this is not how you, based on the research, this is not how you actually learn a language. You acquire normal structures and grammatical. Um, Frameworks very naturally. So, I think that the content is the key. And perhaps with that girl, I would uh, work around the design part and um, make it be as relevant to her work as possible. And all the conversations that we will have would be around that topic that in fact she hates English, but she values her work. And because that's one of the steps that we need to take to get her to a place in her work that she feels accomplished we can make it be enjoyable. So I think that real content is quite important.
1: Seems that is a very old model of, uh, we'll start with present tense and present progressive and then future and then future perfect and then future perfect progressive, a very much grammatical linear. I think that comes from some of the research coming out of psychology a long, long time ago where uh, Mm -hmm. the task about processing what would be a more modern model it, with such recent experience in applied linguistics and psychology? What, how would you look at it from a cognition point of view, language learning now?
0: Uh, yeah, that's that a great question. And uh, you're right, that's an old-fashioned model to, to teach languages linearly. And so now we we take everything contextually. So it has to be embedded in the context. Grammar is important, but you you can learn grammar through the context. So uh, get yourself to the point that you can communicate and then polish the grammar. And on the top of that, I would add that your mother tongue or native languages that you speak are the foundation for you to start off with. Because for example, if in your native language, there is something like present perfect continuous, I would not spend with you a ton of time only because the textbook has three chapters on that. I would just, you know, tell you this is similar, this is how it works, this is what you can compare with your native language. And you get it. You don't have to put that much effort and make it be magical. And on the other hand, if, if you know that in your student's native language, this particular grammatical structure doesn't exist, perhaps you will have to spend a little bit more time conceptualizing with your student how you use that. But again, the rules and the principles, uh, again, are helpful, but it's better to introduce that through a real context. And so actually ask the student to uh, elicit that rule from the text. So instead of you presenting that to the student upfront that, hey, this is how we use the present continuous, you know, A, B, C, and D, you know, children-like sentences and ask them what is similar, what, is, what, what, did, what do these sentences have in common, what do you notice about them? And they will get it because mm-hmm. this is how we acquire grammar. Children are not taught their rules. they um, just get it from the context. It's,
1: uh, an emergent pattern, so to speak. Uh, there seems to be a lot of talk um, and even, an even heated debate on the topic of intentional versus uh, incidental learning. What would you say uh, inc- is like a right balance between incidental and intentional learning?
0: I definitely don't know what is the right balance because of everything you know psychology depends on the person. Most of our students are not experienced language learners. They come to us because they have no clue how to learn. They've perhaps tried a lot of different things and none of them has worked. Um, so we we cannot expect the students to know, okay, I have, let's say one year and I want to get that job, especially in terms of adults, or I want to apply for this university and allow this intuitive learning, because it happens, but again, it depends on the purpose of, of, of that interaction, student-teacher interaction. And I believe that this um, indirect approach can be introduced by incorporating the material that the student actually perceives as very natural to them. So if that's a musician, I would do everything related to music and that specifically genre that that person is interested in because they would anyway look it up on the internet, they would anyway read about it, so why don't we do that in a target language? But still, there has to be a tiny little bit of structure here and there so we know where we are getting like what what is our pathway because we can wander around and that has to do with mimicking how children acquire languages and at the same time children do not acquire a language in one year. They do acquire a language over the course of years. And they get proficient of course as a three year old kid can be proficient. We can say yes they are but they can can they talk about politics? No. They get to that level gradually. And so we have adults who come to us and they work as, let's say, software engineers and they're 20-something years old. They want to pursue that work in another country. They need a little bit more of a language Mm -hmm. to talk about their job in that language. So it's impossible not to introduce that structure. Even if you were indirect in your approach, your indirectness is structured around that.
1: How can teachers better connect with their learners virtually and h- improve the classroom learning experience online mm-hmm. for language yeah. learning?
0: Yeah, again, customizing the content. Spend that little time in the beginning, um, and it will serve you later. Exploring the interests, exploring the goals. Students really come and they say, "Hey, because I want to learn English," because they you know, A, B, C and D, I want to learn Spanish because of this and that. Um, We need to help them clarify that and be with them on the same page, whatever that means. Uh, Some students, for example, may not want to learn how to write because they want to learn how to speak. And you know that, yes, writing can facilitate that uh, speaking um, ability but you may want to introduce that in a more sneaky way here and there, you know, not make it be like a goal that today we practice writing because that will discourage them. Um, Use the content that is appealing. So I, I really like, you know, using something that is already out there, not necessarily designed for language learning. So real articles, real videos on YouTube, real stuff, real music, anything that is interesting to your student, um, or, or the group of students that you have and design your activities around that. It's, it's really important to find the content that doesn't feel textbook-like. I personally use uh, textbooks occasionally, but you know, I take like an exercise, two exercises, or something that is nicely explained there. And it, I use it more for my students' further reference because during lessons, I focus on, on consuming the real content because that's again is boosting their um, motivation. They feel like, oh, after you know, couple of lessons, I can go and read recipes in whatever language, or I can actually, you know, watch some interviews about the topic that I'm interested in, and I get a lot of vocabulary out of it. And I have some. I have one student that, that has been really impressive to me in their just attitude in general because uh, that person is a a software developer and is but is really really interested in polish cinematography and so we've been working around that topic and the you know the level of vocabulary is really advanced the grammar there is it's really complex but we use that sort of material and when we talk you know my, my student is able to like make very complex sentences and use quite sophisticated vocabulary but doesn't know how to say bread or give me, or, you know, there is, or an apple. (laughs) You know, these simple words that you learn in the first, second unit, you know, my student doesn't know them, but he is happy because, um, you know, he he, he can consume the content he wanted to consume.
1: Hmm. From your background, how could I or any teacher kind of create that culture of inclusion so that everyone feels comfortable learning together?
0: Yeah, indeed. There's a lot of conversation about inclusion and um, unfortunately, sometimes it is misunderstood as um, that immersion that equals to um, disconnecting from your heritage, your cultural heritage. And given that all my research in psychology has focused on uh, resilience and, you know, the cultural identity and... um, cultural aspects of our mental health and at the same time academic performance. Um, I know that positive, positive attitude towards your own cultural identity, including a language, can bolster your resilience. Not knowing something or failing at something can be quite triggering. And if you add to that trauma context, that can be an overwhelming experience if you can't succeed in something. So normalizing that is important, and then, yes, they may not speak perfect English, but they speak already you know, two other languages, including three dialects in their native uh, languages. So we should take as much from that as possible uh, and use that as that you know, starting point so that they don't feel like they need to give up on their cultural identity to acquire another language. and make if, if you have you know, a classroom, you know, fostering this inclusive environment that means to, to embrace that diversity and, and facilitate the exchange of, of these cultural backgrounds, including languages. I've been working with the teachers during the training sessions I've had dedicated to refugees and immigrants. And sometimes I hear voices, but we should help them as, as, fast, you know, as much as we can to, to get immersed and focus on English only and the answer that I usually have is like whose purpose are we serving in terms of are we aiming to support the learner or are we having our own agenda because it is not quite of course it can be helpful and it's often very meaningful for our learners to get proficient in a language of a hosting country and at the same time it can cause damage if we um, just will not also embrace diversity that diversity that they bring. Of course, not for all the individuals we work with, that's mm. going to be meaningful. But for some, it can be quite meaningful. So if we can also allow that space, um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, we necessarily have to provide these lessons in their native languages, um, but at least have that conversation with them. Uh, that we are noticing and acknowledging their background and. You know, this is just another door for you uh, to relate to your friends, to make friends, to be a part of that society.
1: Um, I'm gonna switch it over as promised. There's some people that ask some questions. So I have just a couple of quick questions from the audience. Um, One question is, (laughs) I get asked this all the time. What's the best way to learn a language? (laughs) (laughs) Such an open, it is a very broad question. How would you respond?
0: Oh my. Well, I I think I have a very disappointing response to that question because there is no one method that will work for all people and for all languages. It really depends Mm -hmm. on the language. It really depends on your linguistic background. It really depends on your native language, your preferences, the learning style that you have, and all sorts of other things. Uh, But you would never, you know, you can use the best method and technique and the best tutor if you know these things exist (laughs) but assuming they they, they do so you would never succeed i think without a proper motivation and self-discipline so i think that language learning has to be fun has to be useful meaningful to you the methods that you use need to be diversified and um, and you need to be quite i think consistent to take care of that exposure part, and mm. and just allow yourself to, you know, to make a language learning to be a part of your, preferably daily routine or weekly routine. But, you know, I think that making that to be a project, oh, you know, this is a month for language learning, and then for another, you know, the rest of the months I don't use that language, you will get frustrated, yeah. and I think yeah
1: from pacho we have a question from paula is it better for adults to learn one language at a time or is it okay to learn two languages at a time
0: well again it depends i know people who who are very successful in learning even more than two languages they they're you know just learning multiple languages at the same time i know people that have a preference to learn one language at a time um personally but again i have again students who have been learning three, four languages, and I have students who focus on one language and both of these groups are successful, I would say the the factor that matters is your ability to, you know, draw that line between these languages. So what often happens is people get stuck because either they are confusing these languages, basically. So you learn, for example... um, you learn Russian and Ukrainian, relatively similar languages because they belong to the same uh, linguistic group. And one learner would succeed because they will have that foundation. You now there are a lot of similarities, and they will just diverge, but they have a proper structure and they are very purposeful in their learning and they know how to tackle these similarities so they don't confuse them. Another person would not handle that, and their learning process would be very slow because they would feel like oh, I understand the majority of the words, I can go with the flow. And then you end up having both languages at the same level and both of them are just disorganized. So I think that individually someone has to answer the question whether what is their experience with language learning and what's been working for them or hasn't been working for them. What is the linguistic proximity between these languages and how can you use that as a facilitating tool or how that can you know just disturb and interrupt your learning and how you are going to tackle that and then how much time you have and what is your proficiency in both of these languages because if you're let's say spanish is elementary and you pick up on french at the same time you have to put a lot of effort in the beginning a lot of effort to start off with a language are you ready to do that do you have that much time but if your french is at an intermediate level, and you can already watch the movies and have a conversation, and you kind of just need to get to a more complex grammar, and you just pick, you, you just start learning Spanish. My, maybe that for you, it's going to be more manageable.
1: We have another question from Carlos Cook. Uh, oh, that's a great question, Carlos. What has been the hardest language for you to learn?
0: given that my native language is polish you know that's one of the slavic languages uh, my adventure with arabic has been uh, tremendously difficult not because of arabic being difficult but because of my attitude to arabic again you know i i studied arabic during applied linguistics because that was basically dual philology and i hated it i properly hated it i was passionate about middle eastern culture But the approach at the university was grammar-based. It was just draining. You know, we were memorizing tables of conjugations, endless patterns of uh, declinations. And it was just a nightmare, you know. And I got frustrated because after pretty much two years, I was not able to speak. You know, I could, like, translate poetry. I could make perfect sentences in standard Arabic because I was studying in in, in but I, you know, I couldn't speak with people, and that was really frustrating experience. So then I, I decided to prepare for an international Arabic speaking debate in Qatar. So I had that motivation, you know, an external motivation to okay, I'm gonna go and talk politics to people. So I need to like be able to debate in Arabic. Um, so I, I changed my focus because unfortunately the, my program didn't didn't support. Um, speaking skills I was not that effective the curriculum had some flaws and and uh, I know that just among people who learn Arabic it's quite common experience because if you do that at a university you study modern standard Arabic and in the Middle East there is the glosia. so that means that people use different versions of Arabic depending on the context and that standard Arabic is spoken in the media at the universities this is language of literature so I ended up speaking this, you know, nice, posh Arabic, and um, <laughs> I couldn't communicate with people. They could understand me, but they were responding in a dialect. So that was frustrating, and that's why I had my ups and downs, because I was just getting discouraged. So that I would say that for this reason, the Arabic has been the most difficult.
1: How were your feelings towards Arabic before you went to school? Did you have any positive or negative feelings towards Arabic before
0: the school? Mm, I wouldn't say no, no, because I hadn't had um, much exposure to Arabic in, uh, at that time. I was uh, really passionate at that time already about uh, humanitarian work. And uh, and I, I had one friend before I started applied linguistics who came from Kurdistan. So his native language was Kurmanji, but... Uh, you know, I got kind of interested in, in, in that region of the world and, and languages around that. And I really wanted to learn a language that was not a European language. Um, also, I had a funny story in my, funny story in my family because my great grandma, who was Ukrainian, she was a Hebrew teacher. And, uh, you know, it's closer to that region. I didn't have a strong motivation to learn Hebrew, but I was quite attracted to learning Arabic. So I would say that for most part, my attitude was neutral because I just didn't have that much input.
1: Probably neutral, but also a language learner and lover. So maybe even slightly more positive than neutral. I think highlighting the risk of uh, language schools really turning people off. You know, they go with an open mind, but they end up leaving thinking that they're bad at it or they hate it and thus causing harm really. The Socratic do no harm. I think many language classes <laughs> often maybe do harm. I don't know. Yeah.
0: But, you know, I honestly would be like, I don't want to be so unfair towards my, my teachers. They were doing, you know, what they were supposed to do. I just did not know. I was unaware of that linguistic phenomenon in the Middle East, in the Arab speaking mm. countries, because um, they had these vernacular forms of, of, of language that I was unaware of, you know. It's like... Um, Yeah, you just have dialects that you need to acquire if you want to speak with people, and and that's it. So I didn't know about that.
1: We have another great question from Lilianita. Uh, Liliana, it says, how to jump from upper intermediate to advanced levels?
0: That's a lovely question. Exposure, important part. And at that point where you are already able to communicate you should consume the content that is quite advanced. So maybe you can uh, take an online course that is an academic course about the discipline that you are passionate about, and you would anyway um, you know, complete this course, but do it in a target language. So
1: maybe it, if she's a business person taking a business class, or if she's yeah, interested is, in architecture, taking yeah. an architecture, architecture class.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe if you are still a student thinking about exchange programs, uh, change the settings in your phone and mobile devices to a target language, and may you of course will not understand everything, but it will force you to think about it so surround yourself with the language uh you know the daily things that you do do it in a target language, so if you meditate in the morning, listen to an audio in your um, target language when you want to read something, get a book in a target language and as for books, um, quite effective method is when you pair an audiobook with an ebook, for example, so you get both inputs at the same time and you can practice shadowing and um, and, and just also your fluency, not only reading comprehension, um, but get, get yourself a proper material, not in terms of textbooks, but in terms of, uh, you just, you know, advanced content because yeah. you more vocab and you need complex grammar in the context.